I'm Mitzi Miller, and this is Season 5 of 70 Million. Over the past four seasons, we've examined the U.S. criminal justice system through the eyes of local activists, policymakers, and some of the 70 million adults across the U.S. with criminal records. Our reporters chronicled on-the-ground efforts on issues like bail reform, replacing incarceration with mental health treatments, and combating recidivism. The path towards reform has largely been driven by grassroots organizers. And around the country, we're seeing reforms at the local, state, and federal levels. The path to lasting reform also leads to the ballot box, with candidates placing criminal justice reform at the heart of their campaigns. The show's creator and executive producer, Juleka Lantigua, spoke with three candidates in different states about the challenges and opportunities they see for the criminal justice reform movement at this moment. Hi, everybody. This is Julie Calantigua. I'm the creator and executive producer of 70 Million. And this is our fifth and final season. And we are taking on really big and important questions. So today I'm so excited to be in the virtual studio with three powerhouse people who are running for office and who are doing so, I believe, daringly, on the premise that criminal justice needs reform. I am so looking forward to this conversation. Our producers and our editor have been working on this for weeks, and we cannot wait to see what happens. So let me introduce you. In the room with me is Caroline G. Young-Park, who is part of a group of women, four women in Los Angeles, running for Superior Court Judge. Hey, G. Young. Hi, I'm so honored to be having this important conversation with such distinguished company today. Oh, I like the way you say that. And in the room is also Maxwell Alejandro Frost. He is the Democratic candidate for the House in Florida's 10th Congressional District. Hey. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about the conversation. And in the room with us is also Satana DeBerry, who was elected the district attorney of Durham County, North Carolina in 2018. And she's now running for re-election uncontested. Hey, I'm glad to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are so happy to have each and every one of you. Let's start with an easy question. And I want to start with Ji Young because it really goes to the heart of what's going on here. I am right now in your county, in L.A. County, which also happens to have the country's largest jail and de facto the world's largest jail. So you, running on a criminal justice reform, are basically at the epicenter of what it is that we're dealing with en masse across the country. Why would you do this to yourself? The simple answer is that I want to be the change that I want to see. The status quo isn't working for everyone. I would say it's not working for anyone. And so if we want change, we have to make the change happen, letting prosecutors, no offense to anyone here, <laughs> um, <laughs> letting just prosecutors be elected over and over and over to these judge positions is not working for us. We need some diversity of legal background on the bench, 80% of the judges who have been elected in LA County have been prosecutors. 
Mm. Um, in the last election cycle, 100% of the judges who were elected were prosecutors. Mm. And so we have to have more judges who are, who have perspectives that are informed by working with our community members. Okay, but I'm going to push back on that because nationally, less than 3% of defendants actually see a trial. They actually get in front of a judge. So with 45% of the Los Angeles jail population awaiting trial and understanding that the vast majority across the country will never see a judge, are the judges really still that important? And Satana, I hope you're ready because this question is coming right to you after. So the, the issues that we're confronted with, they didn't pop up overnight. There is no one solution there is, it's going to be a multi-pronged solution, and judges are just a small part of that, but mm-hmm. a very important part of the solution. So when they do get in front of a judge, will that defendant have a judge that is fair, that will apply the law fairly, and understand the social context in which the you know crimes are committed, and understands the needs of um, people who do commit crimes, which can, which Mm -hmm. vary, you know? So I understand that point, but again, judges play an important role. All right. So let's go to the only DA in the room. (laughs) Madam. Yeah. Well, I think Ji Young has a, she has a very good point. Yes. The prosecutor is a, powerful position. And uh, it is true that 97% of cases are resolved through plea bargain, through some agreement between the prosecutor and the defendant. However, there's a, there are lots of ways in which judges impact this system. Certainly in, in our state, a judge can reject a plea and ask you to go back and redo it. Uh, so there is that opportunity There are also lots of ways in which judges impact the lives of people who then become defendants in this system. For example, judges are making decisions about children who get removed from their families and who go into foster care and what happens to them when they go into foster care. Almost everywhere across this country, judges are making a decision about what happens to juveniles when they have been charged with crime, how they are sentenced where they end up. And we have seen uh, the tremendous abuses in some states around judges and juvenile cases. So judges are not an insignificant part. Uh, We have been focused, I think, especially over the last few election cycles on who your DA is, know your DA and know what your DA stands for. And so now it's time to look a little bit more broadly. We still want to know who your DA is, but you also should know who your judges are. Okay. Because they're making important decisions as well. We explored just how powerful the role of the prosecutor can be in our season four episode, An Effort to Hold Prosecutors Accountable. While there are many DAs looking to improve the system, like Satana, A legal system that incentivizes criminal convictions can motivate bending the rules to win a case. Nina Sparling reported on a New York case that changed the trajectory of one man's life. 
they offered Clinton a cop out. And I was like, no, because you didn't do this. Like, that's a serious charge. We knew what happened. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. When prosecutor Jesse Sly didn't respond to Clinton's lawyer's request for Williams' record, he broke what's called the Brady Rule, which dates back to a really important Supreme Court case from 1963 called Brady v. Maryland. In that case, the court ruled that prosecutors had to turn over any evidence that could help the defense, like the criminal record of a key witness, DNA evidence, or police reports. Brady violations are one of the most common ways that prosecutors break the rules. Violations like this have been a factor in almost half of all wrongful convictions involving official misconduct in the United States. Mistakes do happen. Innocent people are convicted, and they tend to be convicted most often when evidence is concealed from the jury. That's Joel Rudin, a criminal defense attorney who focuses on cases involving a wrongful conviction. I meet him at the end of the workday at his office in a midtown skyscraper. The doorman directs me to the eighth floor. Rudin, a middle-aged man with a precise and measured demeanor, has made uncovering prosecutorial misconduct something of a specialty. The problem is that prosecutors sometimes want to play judge, jury, and, and executioner. But if prosecutors of all people don't play by the rules, then how can they expect everyone else in society to play by the rules? All right, so I want to bring it back to, I want to bring it to Maxwell now because unprovoked, he decided to run on a criminal justice reform campaign. And that seems very bold post-Trump coming into this election cycle where the predictions are pretty grim about where the agenda overall for the House and Senate are going to go. So Maxwell, what is your strategy here in utilizing what is essentially a matrix of dumpster fires um, to to run your campaign? Well, you know, something that I think really set us apart from other folks in the field and a lot of people in the political discourse is that we really like to take a step back and view how all these different issues intersect with one another and create the conditions that we find ourselves in. So take criminal justice reform, for, for example, right? We're here, you know, we're talking about judges and we're talking about ensuring that we have good people within the system. So when people get into it, we have kind of morally just judges, morally just DAs across the country that uh, are different than what we've been used to. Um, and that's a very important conversation to have. As a, you know, as a, legis- as a potential legislator um, and someone being Congress, I'm also interested in having the conversation of how do we make sure less people are getting into that system in the first place. And when we start having that conversation, it is about, you know, criminal justice reform. It is about, you know, taking a step back and saying, you know, do we, you know, legalizing marijuana is an important thing. Ending the war on war on drugs is an important thing. Uh, passing uh, robust money to get go directly into the community, community violence intervention. So communities can end violence before it happens and there's less interactions with law enforcement. It's important. But also all the other parts of our platform, right? I, I stand for Medicare for all because I believe that we all deserve health care by virtue of being human. I believe in a dignified wage. I believe that people should be having the necessary resources to thrive and not just survive. Mm-hmm. And what we know to be true is most crime are crimes of condition. 
when people have been pushed to the brink for different, you know, socioeconomic yep. reasons. And so when we learned that, we learned that providing health care, ensuring that people have dignified wages, it's all criminal justice reform because we're limiting the amount of people who get into the system in the first place. Um, and that's really okay. where, you know, I, I want my work to be. You know, we all have our part, um, and we need great people like Sadana and Ji Young to be there as, you know, and, and I find this in practice, right? I uh, was someone who hit the streets during the Black Lives Matter uprising. I've been tear gassed. I've been maced. I've been arrested. I went to jail um, last year. Uh, my charges were dropped by a progressive DA here named Aramis Ayala. And now we have another progressive DA here named uh, Monique Worrell, who's doing great work to kind of change the system from the inside. But a lot of times DAs have their, you know, they're, they're stuck to the confinement of the law, especially when you have a dictator like Ron DeSantis, who's heading the ship on the state level. So that's why it's important that we all work together, right? And we can't expect one progressive VA to change everything, even though we need it. We need to all be doing our part. Um, and so it just all matters so much. So that's a very important point, um, that we all play a different part in, in the solution. So judges can only apply the existing law. So that's why legislation is so important. And then prosecutors are so important because prosecutors decide which cases will go forward and which cases won't. Now, there are judges who are disregarding the law. And so will you have a judge? Do you want to go in front of a judge who's going to disregard the law because of their personal opinions? Or do you want to go in front of a judge that is going to apply the law fairly, that um, has worked with people in your community, that is of your community, um, that is the choice before voters. Okay, so I'm definitely going to push back on that because I grew up in the South Bronx in the 80s and 90s in New York City during the height of three strikes. And all of the judges used the excuse of, I'm just following the laws it was written. And half of the black and brown boys in my neighborhood disappeared, right? So... It's it it feels like, yes, we want people sitting on the bench who will be humane. But I think that going back to to where I wanted to lead next, which was the question of what I perceive to be the two sides of the power of policymaking, which is one, the power that resides with the policymakers, but more importantly, the power that resides with the public to put pressure on them. Because, no, we cannot expect that there will be small minor miracles that make the system look like sometimes it gets it right. There has to be sort of like a blanket policy around things that are no longer acceptable post-Eric Gardner, post-BLM, post-Roe v. Wade. Like, they're just things that have to be non-starters. And so I want to go to you, Satana, because... You are, if reelected, one of these key people who can come in with a more humane approach and who can actually enact policy. So talk to us about the ways that you envision being able to enact policy at your level and what you expect the effects of doing so will be for your constituents. Sure. So I have been the DA now since 2019, and the real power that the prosecutor has is indiscretion, right? So you're talking about, you talked about growing up in the South Bronx and seeing half of the black and brown boys disappear and the judge is saying, well, I'm just applying the law as the law is written. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the 
person who had the discretion, right, about whether or not all those black and brown boys got sent away was the prosecutor. Mm. The prosecutor gets to decide who comes to court and who doesn't come to court. And so that's not saying that as a prosecutor, I get to ignore the law, right? It says as a prosecutor, as an elected prosecutor, I am the stand-in for my community and accountability for my community. And if I had live in a community in which there is historic inequality, which is everywhere mm-hmm. in the United States, right, in the criminal justice system, let's be clear, but there's historic inequality where the only people that we prosecute are black and brown, that we have a majority misdemeanor system, not that we are mostly prosecuting murders, because that is a very, very, very small percentage of what we do. Mm -hmm. What we are mostly doing is prosecuting poverty. Yep. What we're mostly doing is prosecuting the outcomes of trauma and those responses. And those in our, and, and in the United States, those are overwhelmingly poor people and people of color. Yeah. And so if my community has said to me, we want to look at a different way to deal with those issues in our community, right? We cannot heal if we keep locking up fathers, if we start locking up mothers, mm-hmm. if we have children incarcerated. Yep. Then as a prosecutor, it's my responsibility, I think, to build policies that still provide accountability, right? We don't want people just randomly breaking the law. Of but course. there's a lot of accountability between you smoked a, a joint on a park bench and life in prison. Yeah. There's a lot of off-ramps from the criminal justice system. Yeah. And as a prosecutor, it's my responsibility to provide those off-ramps for people for whom prison is not going to advance our community. All right. So I actually want to pivot immediately to Maxwell because he has now a track record of having galvanized the masses um, for reform. But he may not be able to do that if elected to office, right? Do you already feel like your loyalty might be put to the test? And how do you plan to address that so that you continue to bring to your government seat the will of the people who elected you? I think part of this is to take a step back. Like, I feel like part of the reason why there's so much voter apathy right now is because for generations we've been lied to by politicians about what's going to happen, right? They say, vote for Mm -hmm. me, and tomorrow, you know, this will happen. Vote for me, and next year this will happen. And the fact Mm -hmm. of the matter is, I'm going to be one of, you know, over 400 people in a body where I get one vote. That's not to diminish Mm -hmm. the power of a member of Congress, but to, to, I think it's important to be honest with people, because no wonder if you're voting for, for years and years, and then that change doesn't happen as quickly as you thought it would be, yeah, I, you know, I might say, what's the point of it as well? So we've been very honest in our campaign about not promising people specific things that are going to happen, right? But promising what I'm going to fight for, how hard I'm going to fight for it, and in the manner in which I'll work with the community. Because it's not about me fighting for the community. It's about me fighting with the community to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that, and we're very transparent and we're very specific about the policies we're about because I've been on the other side of this for, you know, for so long and for the past decade that I understand that one of the top problems with holding legislators accountable is they're never specific. And it's hard to hold someone accountable 
who was never specific in the first place about what they believed in. And so, um, you know, we, me and the movement here, we have a, a very core understanding that there's the bold transformational change we need. There's the future we want, right? It's a future where, and to what Satana was saying, you know, it's about building a future where we're, you know, we're understanding that putting someone behind bars is not the end all be all. It's not the ultimate solution, but we've come from a history where it has been. And there's so much work to do and it has to happen. Yes. In DC. Yes. In your state legislature. Yes. In your local county courts, but also on the streets and the mass education of our culture, Mm -hmm. because that's really what's going to change things when us as a collective culture understand that what we've been doing doesn't work. That's why, you know, our criminal justice reform platform, we don't call it criminal justice reform. We call it reimagining justice. I I think words are really important. And the reason why I like to talk Mm -hmm. about reimagining is because it allows us to take a step back and view the system of the whole as a whole. And the point here is to build a country where prisons are almost obsolete, right? Where, 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 where they're not even necessarily needed. Now that's kind of a utopia and I'm not saying we're going to get there tomorrow, but the way we get there is mm-hmm. by upping our standard of living, ensuring people aren't being pushed to the brink and committing crimes in the first place and working mm-hmm. hand in hand with those within the system to ensure that we're not criminalizing poverty or people because of the zip code they're from or the color of their skin. And okay. that's work that needs to happen hand in hand. And what I see too often in the movement is, you know, you'll be on the streets and people will, you know, say voting's a waste of time, don't do it. And then you'll yep. be in the system and people will say, oh, those protesters aren't doing anything. And I just think it's really important that we elect people who understand the synergy here of everything, because that's the only way we're going to get to the world we want to live in. I love the way that you just encapsulated that. But for example, your state, Florida, spends $2.5 billion a year criminalizing people, right? That is a significant amount of money for a state like Florida to spend. And your state is also one of the linchpins of the rising extremist conservative agenda, right? So your state is actually a really good example of the kind of toxic political climate that we're coming into post this election. That's a lot to bear for a young congressman. How are you going to be able to reflect back to the people in this climate what they've sent you to do there? And I'm going to pose the same question to the other panelists because we cannot have this conversation without the context of after this election, the country will take a very different direction based on what happens in this election. And that direction is going to last probably two to three electoral cycles, including two presidential cycles, right? And so when we talk about criminal justice reform, we have to put it in the context of we are not going to get many opportunities in the next 10 to 12 years to actually enact meaningful reform. Yeah, I I completely agree, right? And 100% of our juvenile facilities here are privately owned, right? And like, we have yeah. many issues here in Florida, and like, and and to answer that, I'll say that's exactly why it's important to be transparent and be a part of the movement, right? I always say like I'm not a savior, right? I think the savior mentality is typically that's how politicians usually work, um, but yep. there is not one person that's going to save us, and I'm not that person. I'm a small piece of a way bigger puzzle. But we need everybody at the table to get to where we're going to go, and we have to have a plan, and we have to be strategic, right? and figure this thing out. And I think uh, on our side, more on the left, I think it's something we haven't been that good about. Um, but the Republicans, and uh, sorry if it's nonpartisan, but like the folks on the right have been great about it. 
They've set, you know, they set that plan to take over state legislatures. They have done it. They've mm-hmm. set that plan to make sure abortion is not protected and that it's not legal and that it's not safe. It happened. It might have taken 20 years, but they got to that place. So as a young person coming into elected space, what I'm thinking about is, yes, in the short term, how do we take care of one another? That's why mutual aid is so important. How do we continue to ensure that we're putting money directly in the communities to end the violence before it happens? But in the long term, how are we building real power, state and local level? And power isn't just elected office. It's in the clergy. It's our teachers. It's our culture makers. It's our influencers. How do we build that power together and have this common shared mentality? Because over the years, that's how we'll get to where we need to go. Over the course of our five seasons, we've reported on how individuals have made an impact in their communities and how sometimes it's a group of like-minded people who come together to overhaul structural issues. Last season, Pamela Kirkland reported on a group of women running for election as one ticket. Let's listen. Harris County, Texas, is home to Houston, the third most populous county and one of the most diverse metro areas in the country. In late 2018, a slate of Black women running for judgeships was grabbing attention. Judge Shannon Baldwin was one of them. It is still one of the most surreal moments of my life. What was meant to be a picture to encourage Houston-area voters to turn out for the 2018 election their Black Girl Magic photo ended up going viral, too. From that day moving forward, I understood it was bigger. I'm sure all of us did. We understood it was bigger than us. In 2018, 17 judicial candidates in the county were Black women. Two judges were running for seats on the State Court of Criminal Appeals, bringing the total number of Black women running for office to 19. The Harris County Democratic Party had brought all of them together for a photo. The moment that we realized that there were 19 of us was just after the primary. And we're in one room. It's tight. It's a lot of people in there. Uh, It's hot and everything else. But in that moment was the first time collectively we saw one another. And to look around that room, all of us, maybe no one else did, but all of us recognized this is different. (laughs) Although Harris County is known for being diverse, that hasn't always been the case on the bench. The Black Girl Magic photo wasn't just different, it was extraordinary. Harris County, notoriously, it only had maybe one, two, maximum three judges, not even all on the bench at the same time, (laughs) African-American judges, and even then one male to maybe two females, okay? That was it. Seventeen women went on to win their election. The two running for seats on the Criminal Court of Appeals lost, but kept their old seats. And I'm just very, very grateful that the climate was such that an African-American woman could come in and now win under the Democratic Party because that was nearly unheard of. Uh, So here I am. So I want to go to Ji Young because if... You and your three running mates are elected judges. You will be also at ground zero for the political swirl that's coming. How have you been preparing for that? And how do you intend to stay focused on reform um, when 
a lot is going to be happening, especially in a already majority minority state like California. So um, people who are elected as judges in L.A. County can be assigned to any of the nine different kinds of courts in the L.A. Superior Court system. Mm. So that's criminal, civil, juvenile, small claims, traffic, uh, family, probate, etc. And so the way that I have been preparing for that role, um, because previously I've been an advocate in so many ways, Um, I Mm -hmm. have pivoted to trying to become more impartial by staying away from the kind of explicit advocacy that I've been doing previously to um, campaigning. And while I'm campaigning, I am subject to um, judicial ethics rules that kind of require Mm -hmm. me to be impartial and prevent me from committing to certain positions. And quite frankly, that transition Mm. has been a bit of a challenge for me as someone who has, you know, advocated on so many different kinds of issues. Someone who defended protesters. And I'm I'm still, I'm actually (laughs) still part of a legal team um, that is representing protesters suing the sheriff's department. I'm still doing that because I still need a job, (laughs) but I can't be um, as vocal on issues as I used to be. But I want to back up and say that I'm operating on a premise that our laws are imperfect Mm. and our laws are shaped, are a living, breathing um, thing that are shaped by at the end of the day, the people. So it's the people who are electing our legislators, our policymakers. And so what Maxwell said about people really being engaged and electing the right people, whether it's prosecutors or legislators or judges, um, it's, it's just so important to put the people in place who understand the the inequities that that exist in our laws, in our processes. Mm -hmm. So actually, this is a perfect point to invite um, Satana to tell us a really beautiful story that I heard from Pamela, our producer, about how she mitigated what could have been a really long sentence for a young man and really brought the concept of restorative justice to life. Can you please share that with us? Yes. So... One of the things that we talk about a lot in my office is accountability for behavior mm. and not about th- and that we're not doing necessarily public safety. We're holding people accountable for their behavior and that nobody gets thrown away, mm. that there's a possibility uh, for change for everybody and everybody has a story. And it is also very true in my work that almost every single defendant that we see was a victim at Mm. some point, Mm. was a victim of violence or some other thing uh, that brought them on this path towards prosecution and and they weren't themselves protected. And so we had a, a situation, a young man who murdered his father. And on the surface... It, that is a hard, just, you know, just me saying that is horrifying, right? Mm-hmm. 
But as we started to look into it, we asked every person who has been accused of crime, we asked their lawyer to provide us with some mitigation. On their behalf, one of the things that has been really surprising to me as a prosecutor is, you know, I've been a criminal defense attorney before. Uh, I've known a lot of people. As a prosecutor, I don't see, I don't get any contact at all with defendants. So I know nothing about them. Mm-hmm. only know what their counsel tells us. Mm-hmm. And the mitigation evidence for this young man, it turns out that his, uh, he, his father had been volatile, um, had been violent towards him since he was a little boy. Mm. And that on this particular day, he was playing a video game with his little cousin and his father wanted them to move the console. And he said no. And they ended up in an argument and the young man uh, had a knife on him. And uh, he stabbed his father many times and left the house Mm. and eventually saw on the news that his father had died. And so called the police and and was picked up and had set in prison, they set in uh, pretrial detention for many years. And we just didn't know, you know, we knew that he wasn't a public safety risk. But he had killed his father. And what happened ended up, we try to, we have used, we try to use restorative justice when we can. And one of his uncles, they were a close-knit family. And at first, of course, all the whole family was horrified by what had happened. And except one of his uncles said that he started sitting down and thinking, what, how would it feel to me if nobody from my family ever spoke to me again? Mm. Like if I had made a mistake, granted, a, made a huge mistake, but that all these people who told me they loved me and cared for me just went away. And then I had to go to prison on top of that. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, nobody would speak to me. And so he reached out to our office and we worked together to do a restorative justice plan. We have an organization here in Durham called Restorative Justice Durham. They worked with the family. We stepped out of the process mm-hmm. and let the, the family and this young man, uh, they met for two years. He continued to be detained, but our local sheriff let um, the mediation team come in, talk with him, let him have therapy during this time. Mm-hmm. And when they came back to us, they came back to us that uh, they thought he had been, he'd served enough time. Mm. And that really what he needed was the opportunity to return to his family. So we agreed. And um, he ended up pleading guilty instead of to first degree murder. He pled to voluntary manslaughter and was released to a transitional home where he has a mentor who is watching over him. He'll be on probation for the next few years, but he has Mm -hmm. regular check-ins with the court. Mm -hmm. And his family is still in contact with him. He has a job. He has the opportunity to, he's had the opportunity to be accountable Mm -hmm. for what he's done. Mm -hmm. But the family has also had the opportunity to be accountable for the part that they played in it because they knew for years that the father was beating this kid. Right. They all knew. And so 
he's still convicted of a crime. That's not the end for him. Right. So he didn't get thrown and away. And he won't now spend his whole life in prison. Yeah. I mean, this is a good time to talk about the fact that 70 million Americans today have a criminal record. And that is something that most people don't realize that one in three adults in this country today are walking around with a criminal record. This is not happening to other people. This is happening to your people, to your family, to your church members, to the people that you play dominoes with, to the people that are in your prayer circle. It is happening to people en masse. Right, we've got just a couple of minutes. And so I want to open the floor um, because this episode will air before elections. And since everybody's running, of course, I want to give you a chance to give a 30-second criminal justice-based appeal to your constituents who might be hearing you on the podcast about why they should put you where you want to be to affect the change that they need to see. So let's start with Maxwell, who's been quiet for quite a while because <laughs> we have great storytellers in the room. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I th thank you everyone for being here. And it was great to be here with the other panelists. Um, this issue is so important because it's more than just like words on a paper. These are people's lives, you know, and, and for me, my organizing career in this campaign has always been about love, love of people, love of humanity, love of community. And when you love somebody, you want them to have health care, you want them to not be criminalized because of the way they look or how much money they have in the bank, and you want them to have the resources they need to tap into the opportunity that this country has. And that's really what I'm all about, um, just love of everybody. We're all part of this grand mosaic of humanity, and we need people in office who understand that. So if folks want to help support us, then go to frostforcongress.com. Uh, you can sign up to volunteer. You can volunteer remotely. You can read about our Reimagining Justice platform there. You can donate, whether it's $27 or $2,700. You know, we could use it to win this race and really fight for justice here in the South, which is incredibly important in times like these. So, again, y'all, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you. All right, Ji Young? I think that the uh, fundamental difference between the usual suspects who run for judge, who are prosecutors, is that prosecutors overall and generally speaking, of course, there are exceptions because their job is to prosecute, tend to have a prosecutorial bias. And it's proven in studies that they tend to um, over-sentence. Judges with a prosecutorial background tend to over-sentence and tend to decide in favor of employers in employment cases. And mm. what I present is... Um, a perspective that believes in the redemption of, of human beings, rehabilitation. And as our laws evolve, uh, I will be a judge who will be willing to apply those laws instead of obstructing them. And that's the fundamental choice that, that people have in these judicial races in L.A. County. Thank you for that. All right, Satana? Well, I am unopposed in November, but I did have two challengers in the primary here, and I won my primary with 80% of the vote. And I won with 80% of the vote because the voters in my community saw what we were doing, and we had been doing what they asked for. As Maxwell said earlier, you know, if you're going to do something, you got to tell the people what you're going to do, but then you got to do it. 
And so we told people (laughs) that our goal was to only prosecute the most serious and violent things, to divert away from court those things that did not need to be in the criminal justice system. And we proved that in the first four years. And the voters rewarded me for that or rewarded us for that in the primary. And so what I would say is it is just as important to go out in November and not just vote for me. But uh, here in North Carolina, we have an important Senate race. Mm -hmm. Maxwell could use some help in Congress. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) make sure you come out and that you you really vote for people who understand how we can live up to the promise of who we should be. That's a word to end on. Thank you so much to each and every one of you. It has been an absolute honor to be in conversation with you. If I could, I would vote for each and every one of you, but I can't because I live in Maryland. We will absolutely be checking in with you, following up with your campaigns, and hopefully cheering you on as you take on your new roles. Um, All the very best as you finish this race. And all the very best as you charge forward, knowing that you've spoken on the record about what you intend to do and everybody's going to be able to hear it. Thank you so much and stay blessed. million creator and executive producer Juleka Lantigua moderated that conversation. Thanks again to our guests G. Young Park, Satana DeBerry, and Maxwell Alejandro Frost for participating. Pamela Kirkland produced this episode. For more information, toolkits, and to download the interactive transcript for this episode, visit 70millionpod.com. 70 Million is an open source podcast because we believe we are all part of the solution. We encourage you to use our episodes and supporting materials in your classrooms, organizations, and anywhere they can make an impact. You may rebroadcast parts of or entire episodes of our five seasons without permission. Just please drop us a line so we can keep track. 70 Million is made possible by a grant from the Safety and Justice Challenge at the MacArthur Foundation and is produced by LWC Studios. Monica Lopez is our editor. Paulina Velasco is our managing producer. Erica Wong mixed this episode. Catherine Nuhan fact-checked it. And Michelle Baker is our photo editor. Juleka Lentiwa is the creator and executive producer. I'm Mitzi Miller. Thank you for listening.